Welcome to the Mercy Commons podcast. Thank you for joining us today. We trust that the Word of God encourages you and that the Holy Spirit empowers you. Good morning, guys. Uh, My name is Neil. I'm one of the pastors of this beautiful, rugged, and flexible community known as Mercy Commons. If you're joining us for the first time today, thank you for being here. We're in our sixth week of this beautiful series on the book of Jonah called, entitled uh, Rebel Hunter. In the past five weeks and three chapters of this book, we have seen an interesting story unfold, haven't we? One about a rebellious prophet called to witness to a brutal enemy nation. And the story started off a little rough for Jonah. Um, in the first chapter, we see that God speaks to his prophet and commands him to go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it. Then much like my youngest son, Finley, when we announced that it's bedtime, he attempts to run. (sighs) Finley. He tries to juke God. That's hilarious. The text says that he went down to Joppa to catch a ride to Tarshish, which is exactly or approximately 3,000 miles in the wrong direction. Give me a ticket to anywhere but Nineveh, right, Stu? Um... He boards the ship and heads to the bottom of the vessel to nap, apparently. God then proceeds to send a great wind upon the sea to confront his prophet. And as the stuff begins to hit the fans, the sailors run below the deck to Jonah and beg him to call on his God. Jonah then confesses that the storm has been caused by his utter disobedience. And Jonah momentarily comes to his senses and instructs the sailors to toss him overboard. The sailors pray to the God of Jonah and beg for forgiveness, they toss him in and the storm instantly subsides. Meanwhile, Jonah sinks to the foundations of the ocean and he prays for the mercy and grace of God to be bestowed upon his rebellious heart once again. And God answers by providing an aqua uber, aka a massive fish to carry him to the very place he was running from, the great Mecca of the violent nation, enemy nation of Assyria, the city of Nineveh. Where we left off in chapter 3, it says that Jonah obeyed the word of the Lord. He delivered one of the potentially most awful sermons on repentance, but he delivered it. And then something remarkable happens. From the king in the land to the last servant, they turn from their extremely violent practices. He commands a time of grieving and fasting to show their desires to repent from their incredible violence and evil. So it was a rough start. Jonah's delivery could have used a little polishing, a little work maybe. But how about the desired outcome? All right, what about, what about the effect of his teaching? Jonah to set a new PR for his teaching game, for his response, a new personal best. Last week I was um, just thinking about this at the dinner table and I had my two older sons in front of me, Hudson and Augustine. You really can't leave this podium camp. I'm just gonna stay here. <laughs> And I I told them basically the same exact story that I just told you. And I asked them the question, what would you do if you were Jonah? And their answers were hilarious, but also amazing. Hudson said a couple of things, but one of the things he said, he said, I would go and tell everyone what God had done. He said, you know, they just got started in this journey. I would probably keep teaching them about Jesus. It's amazing. 
Um, Augustine was mostly playing with the Skylanders, but he said something, and he, he put this together. He's like, wait, those guys were really evil, like he's been listening. He's like, yeah. He's like, and God spared them. I'm like, yes. And he's like, well, he's also saving all the people that they were going to murder anyways. He's like, this is, this is epic. This is amazing. Let's see how Jonah responds in the next verse. Starting in chapter 4, verse 1. It says, but what God did displeased Jonah exceedingly. And he was angry and he prayed to the Lord and said, Oh Lord, is, not this what I, is this not what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. For I knew that you were a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore, now, O oh Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. How come I always get these passages? <laughs> and the Lord said, is it good for you to burn with such anger? Jonah went out to the city and sat to the east of the city, and he made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he should see what would become of the city. Today's sermon is titled Jonah's Epic Meltdown and the problem that we are addressing today or the situation we are attempting to solve is how not to allow the most significant accomplishments of your life to amount to a devastating emotional and spiritual breakdown. I know this may seem dramatic, but I'm going to ask this question again at the end. The first time I read the book of Jonah, I, like many people, were puzzled by its ending. Keller in his book, Rediscovering Jonah, The Secret of God's Mercy, which I will be referencing heavily today. In this book, he talks about how most lay Christians cannot even recall the fourth chapter of this book, but according to his study, this often forgotten and startling chapter reveal the real lessons of the entire narrative. So let's see what we're going to find this morning. Here is our roadmap. We're going to answer the question, why does Jonah want to die? We're going to take a look at how we can potentially be like Jonah. And then we're going to look at how we can change. So point number one, why does Jonah want to die? In order to answer that question, you first have to determine what someone truly lives for. We need to understand what is at the bedrock of this prophet's motivation. One would think that a prophet who would long to see all of the nations of earth blessed, blessed through Israel. Was that not a part of his God's plan? One would expect a man devoted to God, the God of mercy and grace, to help the people of Nineveh to continue in their journey by teaching them what it means to be in a covenant relationship with this God of perfect character. But what we see is a fearful, suicidal, self-righteous, and furious man arguing with the God he claims to worship. Why does Jonah, what does he really live for? What, what does he really love? And according to Keller, he says this. We see that Jonah's real problem was at the deepest level of his heart. When Jonah says in verse 3, in effect, without blank, I have no desire to go on, he means he has lost something that had replaced God as his main joy the main reason and love for, love for his life. He had a relationship with God, but there was something else he valued more. 
His explosive anger shows that he was willing to discard his relationship with God if he does not get this certain unstated thing. When you say, I will not serve you, God, if you don't give me X, then X is your true bottom line, your highest love, your real God, the thing you most trust and rest in. So what was it for Jonah? Nineveh's repentance was pleasing to God, but in Jonah's mind, it was threatening to the fortunes and future of the nation of Israel. If Jonah had to choose between the security of Israel and the loyalty to God, we can see he was ready to push God away. Jonah's particular national identity, this is from Keller, was more foundational to his self-worth than his role as a servant of the God of all nations. The real God had become just a means to an end. He was using God to serve his real God. Jonah cared more about the safety and security of his people than he did about the salvation of an entire nation. One could say that this prophet would rather have a group of people destroyed and spiritually lost as long as it benefited his personal cause. Jonah was literally hoping for these people that they would meet their demise before his eyes because it threatened the true idol that he worshipped. Jonah's love of country had dethroned his love of God. And God showing mercy to Nineveh threatened the safety of his true love, the prosperity of his nation, and, <clears throat> and the advancement of his true cause. He did not live for the glory of God, but rather for the glory of Israel. So what had just happened in chapter 3 was astonishing. Historians believe that just in Nineveh itself, there was 120,000 people, not to mention that this is also the world's toughest audience to reach. We've talked about how violent and terrible that they were. But as they repented, and we know, and I believe and agree with what CJ said, we know from history and we know from the Bible that this was a temporary thing, but Jonah did not know that. He's sitting outside listening to people wailing and crying in repentance. He's seeing animals dressed in sackcloth, literally down to the livestock. The entire city says, let's turn from our evil ways. He should have realized that if God did in fact deliver these people, he's delivered uh, his people from their violence. And Jonah feels no joy, no love no sense of gratitude for being used by God to do such a massive thing. This incredible moment of glory is instead a moment of shame. This most exceedingly profound moment in Jonah's existence is not just meaningless, it is exceedingly displeasing. Keller likens this moment to that of a musician receiving a standing ovation in Carnegie Hall, or an artist's work being placed in a prestigious museum. This is the magnus open potentially, of Jonah's existence, and he feels anger and despair. The reason is, is because Jonah is caught up in idolatry. Idolatry is when something good takes an inappropriate place in our life, is when something good becomes an ultimate cause, when something that is great, like a house or a job or a child or a family, that we give it an, an unholy priority in our life and it jeopardizes how we live. The Bible references idolatry relentlessly. The first commandment talks about it. 
It shows up in scripture over 160 times. And here are just two, two verses to help you understand what's happening with Jonah. In Isaiah 42, verse 17, it says, but those who trust in idols who say you, our, you are our God will be turned away in shame. Seems like the Bible is playing out. In 2 Kings 17, verse 15, it said they, but just for example, I've parenthetically inserted Jonah's name. Jonah rejected the Lord's command and the covenant he made with his ancestors. He chose to follow worthless idols, and he himself too became worthless. We can see the truth of God playing out. Even in Jonah's own words in his prayers, he said those who cling to worthless idols forfeit the grace that could be theirs. Here's the deal, church. If you do not want the culmination of your life to feel and look like this moment in Jonah's, we must keep our hearts free from the worship of earthly things. We must not allow the deepest levels of our identity to associate with anything other than the person, presence, and purposes of our Savior. We must never forfeit the grace of God by clinging or hoping in something other than Christ. Jonah wants to die because he has forgotten what he is supposed to truly live for the glory of God, and the advancement of his kingdom. Jonah finds death more inviting because the idol of nationalism has done what all idols do in the end. They disappoint. They cannot save you. They cannot fulfill you. And guys, just the, the moral of this story that we can take away is that when Christian believers care more for their own interests, their own group security, and the comfort of their own cause, more than the good and salvation of others, we can potentially be sinning like Jonah. So point number two, how are we like Jonah? We're going to look at three things. One thing I want to talk about just up front is that human beings exist to worship. They're designed to worship all human life worships. The second thing we're going to look at is how we identify potential idols in our own life. We're going to do a little exercise and the last thing we're going to look at is how idolatry affects mission and evangelism. So point A, humans are built to worship. Let me just state this premise. Um, the postmodern novelist David Foster Wallace once said that there is no such thing as not worshiping. He said everybody worships. The only choice that one has is what to place your worship in. Philosopher Paul Tillich argued this very simple yet powerful concept about worship and faith. He, faith. he stated that everyone must live for something, for life itself to have meaning. And whatever that thing is eventually becomes the ultimate concern in your life. That belief that Tillich held caused him to consider how, how anyone in life could truly live a life void of faith and worship. That true, thorough atheism was not truly possible. He argued that even if one does not consider their ultimate cause a god or an idol, it still functions as one. So whether you claim to believe in Jesus or not, maybe work is your god, maybe family is your god, maybe materialism, your home, experiences, maybe politics is your god. And whether we acknowledge that or not, the amount of attention and time that we give to those things, worship is really about attention that we can get caught up in idolatry. More from Wallace. Uh, he anticipated a protest to his claims from the secular voices 
uh, but he describes their denial akin to that of an addict denying that they don't actually have a problem. That the act of worshiping is so common in the hearts of mankind that it can be done unconsciously. And this is my question for us. Is it possible for Christians to unconsciously participate in the worshiping of idols? John Calvin said this once, and it's been repeated much, but he said, the human mind is, so to speak, a perpetual forge of idols. It is a factory of idols. In Colossians 3, verse 5, it says, So put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to our earthly nature, sexual immorality, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. This is the book of Colossians, written for believers, encouraging them to put these things to death, which are idolatrous practices. It was a rhetorical question. The answer is yes, we can. So, how do we identify these hidden and unconscious patterns of worship that can so easily distort our lives like they did for Jonah? B, how do we identify the idols in our life? God is so kind, guys. Even in Jonah's frothy, suicidal prayer, he offers him the help through his simple question. Jonah, my boy, is it good for you to burn with so much anger? Keller says this, he says, anger is not wrong. If you love something and it is threatened or harmed, anger is the proper response, but such anger, inordinate anger of self-righteousness and fear is a sign that Jonah loves a counterfeit God. How does inordinate anger and self-righteousness look like a believer? Uh, Look like within a believer? If you showed up to my house on June 20th, of 2020, I could have given you a personal example. Yes, this is another awkward story from Neil's recent experience about how these things play out. You see, when we were forced to close our business, I knew that things were going to get tough. And I knew everyone was expecting this to be over in about two weeks. And I did the wise thing. I said, you know, I, 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 I need to set my expectations so far beyond what people think that I can think calmly and rationally. Because I know the longer that I'm waiting, the harder this is going to be. So I said it way out there, two months. And June 20th was the 65th day that our business had been closed. I was no longer stoic or wise. My mind thought through plan after plan, anxiously trying to make a way to save our business. At this point, I was no longer stoic, but desperate. I felt emotions of despair and furious anger. Um, I caught myself thinking what I would do if my company was gone. Uh, It was a scary and empty feeling. Uh, An unspoken question went through my mind, how would we pay our bills or will we have to move in with Nick? crossed my mind. (laughs) The scariest question of all, after another 25 days of waiting, and I never said it out loud, but in hindsight, just thinking is, who am I going to be if I don't lead this thing anymore? I'm a son of God. I lead this community. But even in the midst of that, I started seeing signs of something I was leaning in and trusting in that was not God. 
In the midst of waiting, somehow my hopes had shifted to my own human ability to make things happen or to provide financially. Um, and they moved away from God's gracious provision of all good things in my life. It's a lesson I've learned many times. And that's just a recent example for me, but how about you guys? Is there something in your heart that causes you, you to say, I will worship you, God, if you save me from X or if you will provide X for me? I'm just going to pull these up and we're going to do a little exercise. This may get a little uncomfortable or awkward. Please do not raise your hands during any of the questions that I ask. But in, in my opinion, these are the most five common idols in our nation. Rising to the top after 2020, political nationalism, and this exists on all sides. We've seen that. I, I literally was thinking about someone I know that's heavily invested in one side or the other, and the thought of them changing political views, it's like someone converting from Islam to Christianity. It's like this is this massive, right? Politics has taken an unholy place in the hearts of some. Maybe it's materialism, the forever home. Oh my gosh, uh, quick plug, Saturday Night Live, not a huge fan of their stuff, but they did this skit on Zillow. That is a cultural artifact, um, if you know what I'm talking about. But people are almost romantically looking at this website, thinking about what they could have. It's, anyhow, uh, maybe it's experiencism. Uh, this could uh, exist in just wanting to be constantly entertained at times or... Uh, just trip after trip after trip to, to, to scratch that itch and to fulfill that longing that uh, our lives orient around those, those things. Maybe it's workism, that we, our worth is fully defined about what we can do or what we earn or how we work. And then just for Valentine's Day, but this one is for real. This, this is the, the idol of romantic love, that, that there's this soulmate out there that is perfectly going to fit your life so that your life gets even more awesome and less challenging. Married people are laughing. <clears throat> All right, guys, the, and this is a little exercise. I'm just going to read a couple questions about some of these topics. All right? And I'm a coach by nature. I still have the privilege of leading CrossFit Meta by God's grace. And one of the, my absolute favorite things to do is to teach people how to move heavy objects quickly and accurately. But as a coach, these things happen so fast that often your eyes can't catch it when it's happening. But after every lift, there's these little indications or signs that they did it incorrectly, and you could work backwards to find what the starting problem was. And so as I read these things, you might notice some emotions start to pop out. You may not know where they are coming from, but they are indicators that your foundation or your starting point is in the wrong place. Did the anticipation of the election results make you anxious? When your candidate won or lost, did you feel high amounts of elation or frustration? Did you believe that something extremely important to you would now take place because of your candidate won, or that, if, uh, or that it was, you were utterly doomed because they lost? If you felt hatred or inordinate anger during the 2020 campaign, your hopes may be in a flawed human institution rather than in the God of all nations. No hands, please. If I told you that you were going to have to move into an ugly apartment and pay rent for the rest of your life, never owning a home, would you feel like a loser? Or do you compare your home to others and feel pride 
when you're looking at someone else's property who is, whose is less desirable than yours? Or do you feel lame when you look at properties that are exquisite and blow yours out of the water? Do you spend a lot of time and energy thinking and planning how to improve the value of your home or to move on the next big thing? What if I told you that the job you have now, the one that is the stepping stone for your real career, would be the job that you work for the rest of your life? How does that make you feel? What if I said that you would be single for the rest of your life? Happy Valentine's Day. Seriously. <laughs> Kelly, Keller, uh, Keller encourages us to consider our unfulfilled dreams and unanswered prayers and see if we respond in humble obedience or prolonged disappointment. And this is a quote from his book. He says, when God does not fulfill your prayers and dreams, do you struggle with disappointment and then eventually go on? Or do you examine yourself and learn lessons and make changes and then go on? Or do you feel that to you, death is better than life? There's a, uh, the difference can tell you if you are dealing with a normal love or, or the love of an idol. So, like God's question to Jonah, is it good for you to burn with such anger was a clue to him. It can also be a clue to us as we seek to unroot the unhealthy loves in our hearts. We can look at the outcome or the expression of our emotions in those situations and may not fully understand them, but they can wave a flag and say, there's something wrong with your foundation, your starting point. Is your starting point in Christ or something else? So we know that all humans worship something. We know that we can all suffer from idolatry, but can we really go as far as rooting for the demise of an entire people group? Which brings us to our next point, point C, how idolatry plays out in evangelism. Jesus, when addressing the idol of greed, made the statement that a man cannot serve two masters. He will either hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. We may not openly speak to God about the disdain of a people group, but let me offer a modern-day parallel, if you will. Um, once upon a time, guys, we had the, this four-week rhythm and some of us kind of still do this within our life groups. Our life groups are amazing. We don't only gather as the church and body of Christ, but we value meeting throughout the week, whether it's back in the day indoors or outdoors now, but being together in homes or outside of homes, breaking bread or not, but doing life together. And we had this rhythm of togetherness and then together in prayer and then togetherness at home and this, this fourth week of mission. Um, let me just offer this uh, example. The example is that you live in a neighborhood with people that don't know Jesus. And when your life group leader encourages you to connect with them and to get to know them with the hopes that over time you develop a meaningful relationship with them, a genuine one. And with that relationship, you will be able to serve them, to love them, and to communicate the radical grace of God to them. And what, what do you do? Uh, do you reach out to them? Do we cross the street? Do we knock on the door? Do we send a text? Do we introduce ourselves? Do we 
spend time with those people that God has placed before us? Um, or are we relieved that we have some time to hang out with our crew, our people, or maybe to work on that project or that side hustle or whatever it is? Uh, we may not openly hate people like Jonah, but he did eventually preach the message of repentance to his enemies. We may not express a visceral hatred for our neighbor, but according to Timmy, once again, uh, our indifference about their salvation can be just as bad. This is actually Becky uh, Pipper quoted by Keller, but it says, the opposite of love is not anger, but hate. And the final form of hatred is indifference. Do we live with a loving concern for our neighbor or do we just sit outside the walls of their lives and watch to see what might happen to them? Guys, I know this is heavy and I'm moving on. <laughs> as long as there is something more important than God God to your heart, you will be like Jonah, both fragile and self-righteous. Whatever it is, it will create pride in your home, in your job, and an inclination to look down upon those that do not have it. If we also, uh, it will also create fear and insecurity. It is the basis for your anxiety, oh, sorry, it is the basis for your happiness, and if anything threatens it, you will be overwhelmed with anger, anxiety, and despair. Jonah was inordinately committed to his nation. And God will have to deal with his idolatry if Jonah is ever to get to the infinite peace of resting in God's grace alone. Which brings us to our third and final point. How do we change? How do we stay free from worthless idols? And this is beautiful, and it's simple. The summation in Keller's argument about how to turn and to stay free from the pull of idolatry is this, the solution to our problem. How do we not allow the most significant aims of our lives to amount to a frustrating sense of meaninglessness? This is the secret meaning we find in this chapter four that helps reveal the lessons of the entire narratives. And this is what he says. The real reason, the real lesson, is to finally recognize that we live wholly by God's grace alone in every area of our life. In the homes we own, in the jobs we attend to, in our parenting, in our pursuit of knowledge, even in our evangelism, we live fully by God's grace. I've mentioned this verse already, and Nick touched on it a few weeks ago as he was preaching early in this series, and it's ironic. During Jonah's prayer, he says, those who cling to worthless idols forfeit their grace of God. He was still thinking of the Ninevites, according to the commentators, and I agree. But I would argue that this also highlights not just the problem, but the solution to resisting idolatry. If it is true that those who cling to worthless idols forfeit grace, then it must be true that those who cling to the grace and mercy of God forfeit the power that idols can take over them. My friends, today is grace to me and you. Ben, you can come up here. Today is grace. The heartbeat that your body just took is grace. 
the air you breathe is grace. To listen, to have hearing and sight, and to contemplate such incredible things is grace. We did not even deserve a body or a conscience. We have been made by God's grace, saved by his grace, and we stand in faith by his grace and his grace alone. We run the race by grace and grace alone. We proclaim and extend grace to the most wicked enemies in our midst because we too were and currently are in need of the grace of God. We proclaim in grace, and grace reminds us that we hold a position that has been received and not achieved. There is nothing that you did to deserve an, even a shot at life. Okay, you weren't entitled to being here, regardless of the health or lack of health of your body, regardless of the situations you've found, you got life that is miraculous and wonderful. We didn't create it, it was a gift. We must, <clears throat> excuse me, when we understand God's radical grace, it emboldens us to have faith for people, places, and situations that are in, di in dire need of it. Mercy Commons, I am not sure if you have noticed, but this world is in desperate need of God's grace and mercy. I may be a little unique in this area, and this is my opinion, but I do not believe by any means that the church is responsible for the world's problems. Yes, she has definitely contributed to some of the suffering and sin that we see in the midst, but she did not break this beautiful world. I do, however, believe in the church, the body of Christ, us, actually possesses the solution. The solution to racist nationalism, the solution to a divided country, the solution to economic oppression, the solution to hatred and discrimination. It is found in the message we believe and the God we serve. When I was studying and in times of prayer, I noticed a longing in me that was articulated when reading Jonah in the early chapters. It came from a pe peculiar place. In chapter 1, where the heathen sailors were terrified and helpless to save themselves. Told you. <laughs> I've been trying to get this out of my mouth. Just practicing with Jacqueline. The same thing happens. Let's try that again. It came from a peculiar place in chapter 1, where heathen sailors were terrified and helpless to save themselves from the storm of God's judgment. They said this to one of God's people. You guys can start playing. It says the captain went down to Jonah and he said this. How can you sleep? How can you sleep right now? Get up call on your God. Maybe he will take notice of us so that we will not perish. Church, I apologize if this seems really heavy. I have no intention to try to make you feel guilty or to manipulate, but this is not a game. This is not a hobby. This is the aim of our life. Anything else we try to put the weight of our life on will do more harm than good to us and to those around us.
we must learn to live by the radical grace of God alone. And if this seems like I'm coming from a place of I've got this all figured out, and you guys can learn something from me, this passage written on my arm basically tells me that the moment I am living in right now matters to God. It says, be very careful how you live, not as unwise, but as wise, making the most of every single opportunity for these days are evil. Therefore, do not live foolishly, but understand the will of God. What is the will of God for you in this moment? I believe that as we awaken to God's mercy and step out in faith, we will find that there are people in this city that God is calling to receive his mercy and to find grace in their great time and need time of need. Can we follow Jesus's example? He did not cause the pain and suffering of this world. He did not create the brokenness across the street, but full of mercy and grace, he participated in the greatest act of mercy that this world has and will ever see. He stepped into our brokenness, our broken world to heal and redeem it. Lord, help us to revel in the grace we have received. Help us to revel in the position that you have placed us in. Help us to revel in the fact that we were too enemies of God when you saved us. Jesus, empower us to hold every earthly love low so that we may powerfully participate in partnership with you and demonstrate and declare your incredible message. Thank you for listening to the Mercy Commons podcast. If you enjoyed today's content, please rate us and hit subscribe. And if you'd like to learn more about us, visit our website at mercycommons.church.